Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about crafting the player experience. We're talking about going beyond just the theme and the mechanics, but the actual experience that you want your players to have. And we're talking to a man who really needs no introduction, Mr. Matt Leacock. Matt, really appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, man, I'm excited to talk to you about this. This is a topic I've been saving for the right person. Like It's been in my, in my notes for a long time. I've wanted to talk about player experience, but I wanted to talk to the right guy about it. And you're the right guy. You're the guy that's created some incredible experiences with your games, Pandemic and Pandemic Legacy that, that's just going crazy right now with popularity. Uh, but just in case people have never heard of you, maybe they've been living under a rock for a while, tell me, tell the listeners who you are, how you got into games, your bio, that good stuff. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Matt Leacock, I work out of Sunnyvale, California. I'm a full-time game designer. I've been doing games full-time since uh, 4th of July, about three years ago. Uh, before that, I was a user experience designer in the Bay Area, working at companies like Yahoo and AOL and Netscape and Apple and so on. Uh, and that kind of uh, led directly into this board gaming career. I've got a lot of the skills I picked up in tech I could apply to, to board games, but I've been passionate about designing and tinkering with games since I was a little kid. Yeah. Now, how did your experience in user experience, working for these tech companies, how did that translate to board games? What did you bring from you know, software yeah. and all that into board games? Well, you use a very similar process uh, for UE design or UX design, depending on <laughs> how you call it, uh, that, uh, that you can apply directly to, to board gaming. You do a lot of um, testing and iterative design. You're always looking at the, the interface um, of, you know, software versus um, like the components and all the things you use to, to play a game, the very, very similar kinds of things. I did a lot of paper prototyping when I was doing uh, user experience design. And that's very similar to a paper prototype for a, for a board game. Um, and the research methods are similar. You do a lot of observation, note-taking, and um, turn that into prioritized lists for the next iteration. So uh, it was a, just a lot of good training for, for board game design, really. Yeah, awesome. I want to hear a little more about your playtesting process in a minute and how your, your kind of experience in the business world translated. Uh, but first, let's just talk about what is the, the uh, player experience? Why is crafting it such an important aspect when you're doing game design? Well, that's what it's really all about. I mean, people play these games to have an experience. And so what we're doing is kind of like creating a cookbook or a recipe that people then follow. And uh, hopefully at the end, you've got a good cake or a you know, good experience. And so you're kind of like prescribing all these different kinds of interactions. And the result of all of that, all that uh, rule writing and instructions is sort of like this interaction between people. So it's kind of an interesting way to, to think about games. Uh, we have this uh, mentality. A lot of people think, oh, it's a roll and move thing or a card game, but you're just talking about like uh, a specific instruction or the physical components. What you're really doing when you're creating a, a game is a, you're creating a set of rules for people to interact with. Yeah, for sure. I think so often as game designers or uh, designers of anything, you get so caught up on the ingredients. Like you were saying, you get caught up, well, this is a worker placement game. Okay, cool. That's 
That's not really yeah. what the game is about. That's that's an ingredient. Tell me about the mm-hmm. cake. And so why is it <laughs> why is it that that so often designers kind of miss the forest for the trees, so to speak, and they get so caught up on the mechanics or the theme, and they just kind of forget about the player? Why why do we do that? Yeah, I think it's more tangible. Um, people are it's easier to identify. It's something physical or or you know you just get caught up in the latest new new fad but, uh, mechanism. Um, so yeah, I think that I think that's why. Yeah. Now one thing. You know, I've been reading and just kind of uh, studying this for a while. And one thing that a lot of people talk about is know your player, like know your customer avatar, so to speak. Know the demographic mm-hmm. of player that you're uh, you're wanting to approach with your game. Uh, when you when you design your games, do you go into it with a certain style of gamer in mind, or what what do you do on that very front end of the process as you're really starting to uh, starting a, a game design? Yeah, it's important for me to kind of define success or define what the product, what it's what it's targeted at. Um, so I'll, I'll go into just to take an example of, uh, say, Forbidden Island versus Pandemic. Um, Forbidden Island was targeted at, at younger younger kids and families, where Pandemic was more of a hobby product. And so you make different decisions based uh, based upon that. So, for example, in Forbidden Island, when you're setting up, you just shuffle the deck and you're ready to go. That's about all I expected that audience to be able to handle. Where in Pandemic, you're actually doing all sorts of steps in order to, to program a deck so that you get a certain kind of payoff and so on. And it's a little deeper. So I'm always thinking about who the audience for a product is and then trying to tailor the complexity and uh, replayability and all, all these different variables uh, and tune them for uh, the people I'm trying to attract or the publishers trying to attract. Yeah, I've talked to so many game designers, especially younger game or, or new game designers. I guess they don't have to be young, but new game designers. Mm-hmm. And they say, yeah, my game is for everybody. Everybody's going to love this game. It's like, okay, that basically means nobody is going to love this game. Yeah. Because so often we, we don't think about that player. Uh, and I read another article. It said, don't hate your player. Like, know who you're targeting and, and make sure your game doesn't hate them. For instance, like you were saying, in Forbidden Island, uh, you have that one deck of cards and you shuffle it because that's what those players that's what they want. That's, they need that super simple thing. If you had 14 rules that are in the setup of the game, that, that's you hating that demographic. Like, that's not actually uh, going towards them. Yeah, or another way of saying it is like, be, try to have a lot of empathy for, for yeah. the players. So if, if you can test with that group of people and really watch them carefully and see, you know, are they suffering <laughs> under the rules, enjoying <laughs> it, are they bored? Um, and the longer you watch people, um, I think that it's hard not to build up some empathy, especially when they're really struggling over certain rules or, or whatnot. And then, you know, you really want to react. It's too easy just to kind of cook up the rules, make the prototype and throw it over the wall and just hope everything will be fine. Uh, but when you see the pain, then then you're motivated. Yeah. So let's let's keep traveling down that road. So what are you looking for in playtesting? Rob Davio, Jamie Stigmar, they've talked about you know the the filming of playtests and all the the really cool research based uh, techniques you bring into playtesting. But what are you looking for as far as player experience when you're watching those playtests? Uh, a number of things. So right, first and foremost, I'm looking for engagement. Are people really drawn into the game and um, interested? Are they leaning in? Or are they they sitting back? So that's one thing. And cooperative games are great for, for playtesting because everybody's always talking to each other. I mean, you want that. You want all sorts of interaction and conversation. And, and if you're getting that kind of energy, and, and you can actually feel sometimes the tension is just palpable. So uh, for co-op games, I'm really looking for tension. And if you're playing it and people are kind of disengaged because their next objective, you know, there, there isn't some crisis that they need to deal with, it's palpable. You, you look at it, you know, like, okay, well, I guess it's my turn, blah, blah, blah. What should we do? I don't care, whatever. As opposed to, oh my God, you know, people 
checking out the board state, asking each other for help, uh, freaking out, not knowing what to do, all is lost. So it's really easy to kind of pick up on that when you're when you're. I, I watch a lot of video of people uh, testing and, and pick up on that. So I'm looking at that first and foremost. Um, along the way, I'm I'm listening to see what kind of terminology are people using? Are they using the terms that I've supplied in the game? Or are they calling things other things? You know, is the, the theme appropriate in some sense, right? Because if they're using a different term for something, maybe I should change the name of it. And then uh, I'm also looking for play errors. You know, are there things in the rules that aren't clear? Are there like certain cognitive problems that I introduce by the way I'm setting certain things up? Is, is the model of the game clear to them? So you can do all sorts of usability types of improvements by watching and seeing what kind of play errors you get. Yeah, now what did uh, your background in tech and the user interface, user experience, what did that bring to the table when you went into games? Like, how did that help you along? Uh, well, I was fortunate to have uh, some mentors in uh, user experience research who watched the way I was conducting research and, and <laughs> basically told me to shut up and sit in the corner and just observe people and, and stop interfering with, with uh, people as they played games. So um, that's one thing. I mean, I... I'm not a researcher by training, but I watched a lot of uh, design research do what they do. And it's sort of like being able to step back, be more objective, and collect lots of data before jumping into conclusions, not supplying the people playing the, the game solutions in, in the meantime, because it kind of messes up with your data. I mean, early on, I, I do that by, by all means. I'm changing the game as I'm, as I'm playing it. You know, As we're going, there's rapid iteration and so on. But later on, it's important to actually kind of observe and, and uh, you know really be careful about um, is what you're presenting the right thing and, and getting better data that way. Um, and then, you know, just the method of uh, recording a session and, and watching um, a recording as opposed to being in the room with people. You get a certain separation from the players. They're more likely to forget you're in the room. They're more likely to be to, to say what they really mean because they don't want to hurt your feelings otherwise. So uh, that, that's some of, some of the stuff I picked up. Yeah, what advice would you give somebody who's thinking about filming playtests? It's heard about people doing it and they're wanting to get into it themselves. What would you tell them? Well, I'm not sure it works for everything. I haven't done it a whole lot for competitive games. I mean, you do get good information when it comes to usability and so on. It's a little harder for me to, to judge engagement. I, then again, you know, I, I spend most of my time in cooperative games, so I'm more confident there. I think it, it works pretty well there because there's so much conversation happening that people are essentially following a, a think-aloud protocol. They're mm -hmm. talking about what they're thinking, and so you kind of can look inside their head and get a, get a sense of what's going on. But it's pretty easy to just ask people to record their session. The audio is often more important than the video. You don't have to be overly concerned about camera angles so much. It's equally useful, depending on the game, to, to get players' faces, to kind of understand what, what their uh, emotions are, as it is to understand the board state. So depending on your game, you can instruct people to, to, to angle it one way or another. But, you know, with, with um, YouTube and Box and Dropbox and, and Drive and so on, it's pretty easy to port videos around. So you can just capture some video quickly and then observe it. So I, as I'm watching, I'm always taking notes. Otherwise, it's too easy to sweep things under the rug you know you can watch something and go, oh that was a problem but whatever uh when you're actually taking notes i you know i'll even capture the timestamp and then classify everything as either an observation something i've actually witnessed or an idea which i capture separately because it's not something i'm necessarily seeing uh, and kind of bracket it you know i can kind of dump my head there and then, then go back and, and watch more objectively or an issue or, or some issue with the, what's happening. And so by just classifying under those three different things, I can kind of quickly go through any given video and, 
and digest it and figure out what I need to do for the next round. Yeah. Now, is that a very similar system that you would use if you were in the room? Yeah. When I'm in the room, I'm usually, I, I don't want to have a laptop with me. I want to be closer to the action. And uh, there I'm using a, a notebook. And then later on, I'll usually transcribe that into uh, Google Drive and into a spreadsheet. Often I'm working with a collaborator, so it's good. Uh, it forces me to kind of take notes for my collaborator, but then it also makes me also think about what I'm, what I'm doing more because I have to kind of react to what I've written down. Yeah. Now, what advice would you give somebody as far as taking notes? If they were looking for that player experience, they're really trying to, to you know, have a certain experience, what notes should they be taking? What should they be looking for? Let's see. So I mean, one thing is just kind of documenting what's going on. Uh, if it's just the, the routine stuff of the game, you obviously don't have to document everything that's happening. But I'm looking for emotional changes. I'm looking for any kinds of bugs. I'm looking for whenever somebody checks a rule book, I, I jot that down. Because, uh, the components aren't actually communicating the rules out or they weren't memorable enough. You know, often you tie theme or story into your rules so that it makes it easier to recall certain things. You know, if that's falling down, you might notice it in the test. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's certain patterns that I, I think I've I picked up that I, <laughs> I don't actually realize I'm doing, so yeah. it's kind of hard to articulate. Yeah, one thing Rob said he learned from you was whenever you're taking notes, don't write down just your idea on how to fix something. Write down the problem. Make sure you write down the problem. And if you have an idea, great. But the, you know, the challenge is if you write down the idea to fix it, but then you realize that that doesn't work and you can't remember the, the problem, then you're out of luck. You know? And so do you have any other kind of advice uh, as far as along those lines? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember it being described as bracketing. If you've got this idea of how to fix a problem and you don't write it down, it can interfere with your ability to observe what's going on. So it's good to jot it down. So you can pause and then jot it down and then come back and then try to observe, like, again, more objectively, just writing down the behaviors you see. And then if you write down and witness a problem, write down the problem. And then that separates the problem from the solution. And like Rob said, you know, if the solution doesn't work, you can go back and identifying the problems is the, the key purpose of of the playtesting and then uh that creates seeds for ideas when you're doing the development as sort of the next step but it's, it's really hard not to think about solutions while you're watching so I, my recommendation would be to jot it down you know while the video is paused and then go back and keep watching yeah another advantage of having it on video and not necessarily being live there in the room now is that something you picked up in tech and brought it into board games or something you learned along the way in gaming no i, I learned that uh at aol and yahoo watching design researchers there gotcha now any any other things that you brought from that world into gaming you know something that because i'm never going to work for yahoo so like what what would i learn if i <laughs> did you know if i spent a bunch of time working there under those guys what would i learn that i could take into gaming uh well one thing i it's sort of a state of mind is that so Design is just a means to an end, getting the product out the door. So a lot of the prototypes we created were just in order to communicate a solution to an engineering team. So I learned not to get too attached to any given prototype and to consider every, every prototype to be disposable. And I think you have to be ready to rip up anything and throw it away if you find out that there's a better solution out there. And that can be really hard if you spend a lot of time investing in the uh, the visual design of something, you know, you've got this finely laid out thing or this really well-crafted game board where everything's in exactly the right position. And then you realize, you know, we have to take out 20% of, you know, the elements and you're like, or we have to add more. How are you going to make that work without undoing all that really nice finesse work that you've done? So if you're willing to kind of throw everything out at any time, 
you're much more apt to, to, to modify your design in order to respond to uh, new, new feedback you've gotten from, from play testers. Yeah, it's a great point. I think as a designer, your, I don't know what the right word is, goodness, your greatness, your ability as a designer is in your abil- also in your ability to cut what you love, right? Because that's what kind of separates people that are beginning and people that have been doing this for a long time. You learn that if I really want this game to be great, I might have to cut something out that I love and I think is great, but it's not working. And so what advice would you give to a newbie who, who's, you know, to get one game that's got that one idea and they keep talking to publishers and the publisher's like, yeah, you need to cut 50% of this. Like, how would you soften the blow and let them know it's going to be okay? I mean, it's something you learn with experience, just um, uh, a lot of humility. You can have a lot of great ideas, but then they don't survive testing. And you just have to kind of learn that that's ultimately what, what matters, that, that people actually enjoy the game. So if if you watch and people aren't you need to be able to respond to that and know that great ideas come from anywhere and that you're not so you know the special flower i mean a lot of the the really um great quality of a of a game is not so much in the idea uh but it's really about the execution and about the fine uh, attention that goes into the last few percent all right so tell me a little more about your process when you know you have a game in your head it maybe lives in a notebook for a while but do you begin with uh, a mechanic or a theme, or do you begin with an experience? You say, I want players to experience the world is about to end because of all these diseases, and now they get figured out. Like, how do you begin your process? It's really all over the board. Um, sometimes I'll get pitched a, a, an idea, or sometimes I'll have an idea, and generally they come as a package of, of several things kind of stuck together. I, I Very rarely does someone say, hey, you know, here's a, here's a raw mechanism. We want a game on that. Yeah. I don't think that's ever happened to me. But you might get something like, "Hey, we want a, a cooperative card game for kids. Uh, can you can you do something there?" And it's it's much more difficult for me to to start with something like that than it is to to start with uh, a story plus or a story and a theme, um, some notion of what the the materials are and what the mechanisms are. So usually a pitch is is some combination of those things. And usually my ideas come that way too. They're not just I want to do a deck building game. It's usually um, you know, I want to do you know, for example, I want to do a, a game about horrible diseases with a, a node-based map with multi-purpose cards. You know, um, I think all of those things kind of came together uh, when I was working on Pandemic. At the same time, it wasn't just one one of those. So, what advice would you give someone that that has an idea, that have have this experience, this game they want to make, but they're really trying hard to figure out the mechanic that goes with that? Any you know anything you've learned over the years as far as you know? trying different mechanics and figuring out which one works or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, uh, it probably makes a lot of sense to play as many games as you can just to get an idea of the, the variety of things out there. I also think it's important. So early on, uh, you can you can start out doing just expansions for games and kind of fiddling around with smaller problems rather than trying to do this whole cloth design. But I think if you want to do something more original, it, you're always building on existing prior art. But I think it's important to be able to come up with something somewhat novel in order to add on to what's existing. So I'm always trying to trying to look to see if there's any way I can uh, not just create derivative uh, mashups of, of other existing games. So while that might be an interesting place to start, I don't think that's where you want to end up. So play a lot of different stuff, experiment, extend, and then gradually kind of expand out, I think would be my my suggestion. Yeah, definitely start small. I feel like every new designer, it's like 99% of new designers, every game they, they, they first make is way too big, way too complex, way too many miniatures that they want in the game, all these different things that are way too big. 
And I think that's great advice. Start off making expansions. Try, start off trying to make a game a little bit better in one or two ways because it's going to be, uh, like you were talking about earlier, more tangible. You're going to be able to wrap your head around it mm-hmm. a little better, and you're going to learn so much. Now, what was, was Pandemic the first game you ever worked on, or were there other ones that you had before that? No, I, I've worked on just, uh, you know, I've made hundreds of bad games, well, maybe not hundreds, but dozens of really bad games right. prior to Pandemic. Right. Um, and I self-published a couple of them, just a couple hundred units for each of them. Um, but uh, Pandemic was the first one that was professionally published with an outside publisher. Yeah, I think that's another thing. People, they look at Matt Leacock and Eric Lang and some of these people, Richard Launius, who have all these games on shelves now, and they don't see the 12, 1,500 games that didn't work before you got the one that worked really well. And so I think it's important for everyone in any kind of medium, whether you're in art or writing, film, whatever, that you have to make a lot of bad art to get to the point where you're good enough to make good stuff. And now all those games that you you made that maybe didn't work out so well or, or, you know, publishers didn't want, did that lead to Pandemic? Did, did some of those ideas from those other games lead into your idea for Pandemic or the mechanics? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's one game that I did as a, as a kid. Um, I think it was maybe in middle school where you were, a semato- you were a subatomic particle and you were bouncing around a nuclear reactor or something. Yeah. I didn't know anything about nuclear physics or anything. But what I was excited about was you could follow certain paths and then you could split. So you're an atom splitting. And those two bounced around and then they could hit some other space and they would split so what i wanted to do is have these crazy chain reactions that just reach some sort of critical mass and maybe the i can't remember was the first player who melted on the reactor one or or what but the idea of of just crazy chain reactions was really intriguing to me and i want to capture some of that excitement and energy um in the um, pandemic game and so that's i think was the seed of the idea of the um outbreaks that that lead to multiple outbreaks that could chain react so I can point to that as, a, as an inspiration. I'm not sure if other games um, that I had done actually fed into it, but uh, you just sort of you learn how to you learn how to make mistakes and you learn how to recover and you learn sort of the process just by doing it over and over again and what what things to avoid. Yeah, and so an idea from seventh grade turned into the most popular, or at least the number one board game on Board Game Geek in the world. So it's just <laughs> it's a cool process, man, and you never know where an idea is going to come from, but I feel like people get so discouraged about failure and they, they fail to understand that the more you fail, the more you learn, or you should be learning, and the more you fail, the more you grow. And I think it was Seth Godin that talked about how, he says, if I fail more than you, I win, because I'm going to learn more than you, I'm going to know more than you. So if I can fail more than you, I'm going to learn, you know, I'm, I'm going to win in the end. And I think that's really important, especially in game design, because you're going to fail a lot and a lot of play tests aren't going to go very well. And a lot of game ideas you love in your head, you're going to get on the table and they're garbage. And so fail over and over and over again, learning and growing, because you never know what you're going to turn out with. Yeah, I heard uh, I, one, one poet saying the secret to writing good poetry is to write a lot of bad poetry first and get it out of the way. Uh, you, know, yep. you needed to write at least 200 bad poems before you could even think about creating a good poem. So. Right. I think it's I think it's similar with games. Yeah, definitely. All right, so tell me about some challenges that you faced when working on games that you're really trying to to get that certain experience. And maybe it was pandemic, maybe it was mole rats in space, some of these other games you've done where you were really aiming at a certain experience and it just wasn't working. The playtesters just weren't digging it; they were just weren't getting it. What were some of those challenges that you've gone through? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've worked on games where uh, it just hasn't happened. Um, generally speaking, I try to find a good core loop or a good good simple core game that I can build out from. And so that uh, seed or the, 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 just the fundamental piece of the game that sets it apart from anything else 
uh, needs to work and really sing before I want to build it out in something bigger. And I had one game called Ants that I worked on um, around the same time as Pandemic. I think I started on it before Pandemic and got it up to a, a playable version. And I pitched it to a publisher and, and got a lot of feedback. And then I iterated on it and sent it out and they were they thought it was even worse. <laughs> and I just kept kind of like stumbling around in the dark trying to figure out how to make the game better. I, I had a, you know, a whole other set of uh, mechanisms to go this way and people liked it even less and then I went this way and I didn't go anywhere. And I take it down every couple of years or so, and um, it, it just never happened. So it's it's up on the shelf, and uh, I think it's up in the attic now. I don't think it's going to come down it's again. It's above the shelf, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So without that that core, that that really works, and it is also differentiated from other games in the market. I don't want to create another, you know, I don't want to create a worker placement game, for example, that's not as good or better than other stuff on the market, if because I I don't think there's a reason to buy it then. So right. I'm usually generally looking for something, trying to build something that can stand on its own and uh, I can really get behind. Yeah, so tell me, this is a question I've gotten a lot from from listeners is, how do you know when to walk away? Like when an experience isn't working, when a game's not working, like you're talking about with Ants, when did you know, okay, this is it, this is just not going to work and put it on the shelf? And when did you know this is not ever going to work and put it in the attic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, well, a lot of the times you're, you're trying to, when you're testing, you're trying to identify the problem. And when the problem is, uh, I don't know what the game is. <laughs> I don't know what, what sets it apart. I don't really understand what my creative brief is anymore. You know, what, who I'd pitch this to, uh, why I'd get excited about it. But that was when I put it in the attic. When I usually know I'm done when the feedback I'm getting uh, is smaller and smaller things until the point where you're getting to just small editing things in the rules or, or small tweaks to the visual design that other people are tackling. So uh, sometimes it takes a, a real long time to get there, though. Uh, the you can the last five to ten percent of the quality take take the longest, and yeah. that's where I think that also helps really differentiate products from each other. So if you get a game to the eighty percent mark, you can do that in maybe half the time as it <laughs> it takes to get it to the hundred percent mark. Yeah, I think something Rob mentioned about Pandemic Legacy when working with you is he said to you, "Hey, I think this game's about eighty percent done." And your response was, okay, good. There's only 80% more to go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then when you get that 8% done, then you just got 81%. Yeah, it seems like some logarithmic kind of thing. Right. Uh, but you have to keep, uh, Rob and I spent a lot of time just trying to delude ourselves into thinking that this would be really simple. You just need to figure out how to get to that next milestone in order to keep your morale up because they feel really daunting. Yeah, no doubt. All right, so let's let's kind of keep traveling down this knowing when to walk away. What is your process for stepping away from a game for a time? You know, if it, you just you don't have any good ideas, your ideas you're having aren't working, the experience is not there. Do you have a process of stepping away or anything like that and putting it on the shelf just for a short time? Not really. I mean, I'm typically working on multiple products, so if if one's not working, I will uh, I'll just switch switch gears to something else. Um, that's one of the benefits of having. Longer development times and, and not having necessarily really critical deadlines and working as an employee for a product for a, for a company where you've got to meet this by this you know right. it's got to be done by Friday <laughs> that that would be pretty hard on my creative process because right now I you know I work on something I get in the flow of it and I just keep keep going with it um, and if I get stuck then I can set it aside and work on a different project often it helps to be able to test those those games when you do get stuck with other people other other developers, expert um, designers, uh, expert players. Uh, or you can do any kind of playtesting and maybe 
stumble into a solution. But it's it's really great to be able to have another developer or co-designer to bounce ideas off of when you get stuck because they, they can look at it from another angle. Yeah. Now, do you have like a consistent playtest group that comes to your house every week? Or like, what do you do as far as playtesting? Yeah, I, I do a lot of early playtesting by myself. And then I do... Uh, additional rounds with uh, friends locally. And then it doesn't really take that long before I can develop something up into a kit that I can mail out and get feedback in from remote testers. And I, I tend to do that more because I can get a wider pool. And I've got a, maybe about a half dozen to a dozen different groups that I, that I go out to, but I, I try to mix it up. I also bring games to uh, conventions, and that's great because then I run into people that I don't know mm-hmm. and they can test and I can get all sorts of different points of view. Yeah, and how did you find those testers, the ones that are in those groups? How did you find those people? Uh, I think a lot of it was introductions and conferences, uh, but I don't really have a method for identifying uh, groups right now. I mean, I, someday maybe I'll have some sort of database and say this group would be great for that. Yeah. Uh, but after a while, you, you get really good feedback from certain groups, and, and I tend to go back uh, to the same groups again and again. I don't want to over-rely on them, though, because um, I do want to make sure that I get points of view from elsewhere because it can lead to all sorts of different sorts of ideas and then you don't want people to be so pro at your game that they uh, uh, might overlook certain things I mean if you got a, a pro group they can you can get to the dynamics of a game pretty quickly without necessarily having to worry about the usability errors so you might go with a more um, more of a newbie group to, to play the game fresh out of the box for example never played Pandemic and see um, what kind of what kind of things you can catch from from a different set of people. Yeah, I think a lot of times playtesters run into that curse of knowledge, just as we do as designers. We know the game so well that we Mm -hmm. look over obvious issues or obvious problems just because we don't think... It's kind of like it's very difficult to edit your own book because you know what it's supposed to say. And so when you read it, you read it as it should be, not as it is in reality. Mm -hmm. All right, so let me get your thoughts on this. I've played some games where after the first play... You know, it wasn't a good experience, not for me at least. I lost by 50 points. I have no idea why I lost by 50 points. And then the guy that wins, he says, oh, well, you just have to play it four or five times, and then it's a lot more enjoyable. So, like, what are your thoughts on games that require <laughs> lots and lots of plays to really have the the experience that the designer set out to create? Well, I, it's asking a lot of your players, so that wouldn't be something I would aim for. I it's got to work out of the box for me. Otherwise, it's not gonna. It's not gonna happen. I mean, if if you for me, I mean, if, if you play my game five times, I am over the moon. <laughs> uh, there's so many games out there, you know, a thousand games or plus per year, that if you get if it get, I mean, if you break the shrink, that's your first barrier, right? You got to get through that. Then you got to actually read the rule book. Got to help you if you can make it through that gate. Yeah. Um, then you got to attract players, and then you got to convince them to play the game. That's no small thing. Right. And then uh, you got to play. You, know, you actually played it. That's fantastic. Okay, you know that's wonderful. If you repeat play, that's great. You get to five plays. That's that. That's success for me. So if it's not fun until the fifth play, you've lost. It's not going to work. It's not going to. You're going to probably sell. You know, a bunch of your first print run, and then that'll be it. Um, and that you know, depending on your you know criteria for success, success that may be wonderful. Um, but that, that's not enough for me. I, <laughs> I want people to really keep coming back for more. Yeah, for sure. And this goes back to what we were talking about early, earlier on, is having empathy for your players, understanding that they're probably not going to play it five times. And so it really needs to be good right out of the box, whether it's the rule book needs to be good, the components, all these things. Yeah. But it needs to be an enjoyable experience, especially if you're making family games you know, or cooperative games mm-hmm. or these things where – 
people come together and they're 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 coming to have a good time. That's another thing that bothers me about some game designs. It's like you realize people play this kind of thing to have fun, right? They, that they <laughs> they're not doing this to have a math test or you know to deal with the economics of grand scale. Yeah. You know, one thing I've given advice to people is realize that you're not creating a game; you're creating a fun engine that you put time in and you get fun out. That's what you're creating as an engine. And so, if the game's not fun, you really kind of need to reassess what you're what you're trying to accomplish. So, going into let's, let's kind of take a step back. Something I just thought about, based on what you said earlier, was defining what a win looks like when you're starting off on a game, starting in a design, really getting into the development of a game. Even what does a win look like for you? You just said just a moment ago, if, you know, if you can get somebody to play your game five times, then that's you're over the moon. But what does like do you write down what you're trying, like what the scoreboard is? I think that's one thing people struggle with is like, well, what does winning look like in game design? Does it, does it look like having your game on a shelf? Maybe, but what does winning look like in your mind? And do you kind of keep that at the forefront of your mind throughout the process? Uh, you mean like as, as a game designer, what my objectives are in my career? Like, no, no, like for I, specific or games. Or is it as I'm uh, oh, all right. Um, like, so for instance, when you were, when you and Rob were working on pandemic legacy, the first season, mm-hmm. like, did you write down what winning looks like? in your mind, like what success looks like for this game? Or did you just kind of jump right in? Like what is, what's your process for that? I, I think it's more um, an intuitive thing. I basically wanted the uh, people to enjoy the game and we wanted people to buy the game and tell their friends about it after they played it. I mean, this is sort of assumptions that we have going to any of them, mm-hmm. um, any of my games. You know, I want, I want them to be loved by people. Um, and then, you know, they talk about it and other people play them, enjoy them and then recommend them to their friends and so on. I mean, most, most games are successful based on word of mouth. So, you know, at the end of the day, the product's got to be really good. You can, um, you can throw a lot into marketing and you can get an initial uh, set of sales. But if you, want, if you want like an evergreen game, I think really it's, it's kind of hard to make up for a, a lack of quality. So, um, and then, you know, it's not just the mechanisms. It's also the way the game's presented. There's, there's so many different things that play into it. You want, you want the overall package to be really great and then deliver a great experience but yeah i don't think we really wrote that down it's sort of something i think we kind of take for granted yeah do you have any advice as far as tips or tricks for really attaining that word of mouth you know because that's the <laughs> thing to get people to tell somebody else that's a huge thing for them to say hey you yeah. need to try this because they could be talking about anything in the world and for them to say i'm going to spend the next 10 minutes telling you about this board game i was playing like anything you found that really like pushes that to happen well, I'm not a marketer, so I don't spend a whole lot of time crafting the messaging around around the stuff. I, I, I'm just trying to focus on the quality of the experience and trying to make that uh, really excellent. So there's a lot of different ways you can approach that. You know, you try to bump up engagement, um, try to really kind of mess with people's emotions, and then you know a lot of that leads to really good storytelling. So if you can you can capture your the experience you had that evening in a story that you can tell someone, then it's probably going to be more powerful than saying, oh, I played this game, it's really great. You, yeah. you could say, I played this, and you know, such and such happened. So I think stories are a really important part of sharing experience, and, and that can lead into better word of mouth. But yeah, for, from a game design perspective, I'm, I'm really looking at you know trying to improve the experience, but then marketing can boost that even further um, with all the techniques they use, which are... I'm not going to pretend I'm a marketer, so I'm not going to try to explain all that. Yeah. But that, that also helps amplify it. But you can throw a lot of marketing on a really crappy product and might not do anything. So I think I think they're both really important. Right. And unfortunately, I think we live in an age now where, this is my personal opinion, I don't know if this is true, but if I see a movie 
like a commercial for a movie over and over and over again, like I see all sorts of marketing money being spent on a movie that's about to come out, it's probably not a very good movie. Like I feel like they're trying to make up for the fact that it's not a quality movie by spending more money to get it out there more and all that. And so that's almost like a red flag to me now because like what you're saying earlier, the quality is going to, is going to get people to talk about it. Uh, and so if you create a really great game, that's going to create more print runs, whereas marketing can, can create one print run, but a great game can create that evergreen process. But yeah, I, I think of it as like a multiplication effect. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. But one thing I really, I love what you, you said just a moment ago, storytelling. If you really think about the game as, every game has a story. Even like those really complicated Euro games have a story because when people talk about it, they don't say, hey, you remember that time I put that little wooden meeple there in that place and I got these two cubes and I did, the, like that's not how they talk. They say, remember that time I cut you off and you couldn't, you know, do your strategy like you wanted to and I beat you by, you know, I, I won there at the end. That's what, that's what they say. They tell it as a story. They don't tell it as mechanics. They don't say, remember that time right. I put my worker in that place? No, that's not what they say. And so, Understanding that your game is going to tell a story and telling the best story that you can is going to create that experience. Any advice uh, for somebody that's really wanting to create a, a great story or a great narrative in their game? Uh, well, it, can, it kind of comes down to two big things stand out for me. One is um, one is all the different elements, uh, the nouns, verbs, as it were, in your game are knit together and the players manipulate them and, and a story emerges from that. So you've got, sorry, I think you want to if you want a good game you want an emergent narrative rather than just reading story cards right. um, there's a big difference between you know I, I read this card and it tells us what kind of a great time we're having <laughs> <laughs> and and actually having autonomy and um, you know you're actually moving things around you're affecting your your world um, in this nice contained safe space and um, you're doing things that you can't do necessarily in the real world and you're interacting and and the results of your actions have consequences and all that can then be told as a as a narrative. So that's just a sequence, though, of things. It's like plot. Um, I think in order to make it engaging, you need to have emotional highs and lows. You know, you need to uh, be worried or excited or um, you know have a lot of anticipation. There's a lot of different um, beats that you can you can sequence one after another that that really have the players go up and down over the course of play. And a lot of my games have that sort of rhythm. You know, you, you have your turn and you do something good and then you draw a bad card and something goes bad. And, and often the stakes get higher over the course of play. So a lot of the techniques you can use in a screenwriting that you can apply to a, to a board game. Uh, because you can look to see, you know, you have these ever-increasing complications with rising stakes and, and uh, highs and lows and so on are, are really how you want to capture a player and um i think that ultimately lead to better you know when you're when you're talking about it later you can relate that experience to someone else and really interest them yeah i watched your gdc talk when you were talking about you and rob were talking about pandemic legacy and i want to say you you mentioned a book that you read that really helped with understanding story arc and all that do you you remember what book i'm talking about Oh, yeah, there's a, I don't think I've got it on the shelf here. Um, sort of like the Bible of, uh, or the quote Bible yeah. <laughs> of screenwriting. Uh, Robert McGee's book, uh, Story, mm-hmm. which I found really helpful when we were, when we were working on Pandemic Legacy. Yeah, now is that, is those, are those concepts in that book, could they be applied to games that aren't legacy games or aren't like super narrative yeah, driven? Yeah, I, I think they could, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, we have, we're fortunate in that we have a campaign, so it's 12 games or 12 months anyway. Uh, could be more games, but. Yeah, you can have a, a much longer arc to it, but you can break it down. You know, maybe you're just designing you know, the game is just an act as opposed to, uh, or a, you know, a sequence of scenes rather than a whole 
mm-hmm. a whole movie right, when you do the uh, comparison. Uh, but all those all those uh, different techniques and, and the way you kind of sort of the structure, uh, the way you think of the structure of a story uh, for a movie, you can apply to a game and, and learn all sorts of different new techniques that you might not have thought of. It's a different lens of, of looking at uh, a game. Yeah. So I mean, basically thinking about this is something I was talking to my students. I'm, I'm an English teacher. And we were talking the other day about the difference between books and movies and why why they change things when they you know when they remake a a book into a movie. And I told them, you know, you've got like six minutes in a movie. You've got the first six minutes to hook your audience. Otherwise, they check out, they're bored, they don't care. And with a book, you've got longer to do that. And so, like with a campaign game, you've got a little longer to tell the story, and so you can kind of go up. But with a, if you know if you're making a sixty minute game and really thinking about that three-act structure or whatever, like really try to hook your audience in for that experience right off the bat. Like drop them right into the problem. Like you don't need a bunch of exposition. You don't need a bunch yeah. of, like if you can get rid of the first five turns, that's one thing I, I learned. I was playing, I was designing a game and I noticed that in playtesting, the first five turns of everybody, everybody was always the same. They always made the same decisions. And it's like, okay, well, let mm-hmm. me just start there. Let's start on, let's start on turn five and begin with that action instead of like trying to wade through turns just to get there. And so just understanding that, yeah, your players, they want those highs and lows and don't give them just a bunch of flat, you know, let them rise and, and go back down. Yeah, it's really important. Even in legacy games, you've got this long period of time to tell it, but you've really got to hook them early on. You can't wait till game three uh, to, to get them really engrossed or, or even game two. You've got, it's got to happen in uh, the first game. You've got to understand that your, your actions have consequences and um, the stakes are high right away. Otherwise, people are, are going to check out and get kind of bored and go like, oh, okay, that was it. All right, I guess we'll play again uh, because we made such a large investment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like you said earlier, there's so many games out on the market now you know, trying to get everyone's attention. And so if your game isn't that great, there's a lot of other games people could be playing. And so if they're going to open the shrink, they're going to learn the rules. You should be rewarding them for for doing that. All right, so let's talk about some tips for adjusting things, like adjusting the experience. For instance, adjusting the competitiveness or adjusting the tension, adjusting the cooperation amongst players. What have you learned? Just little tips and tricks of ways to adjust things uh, kind of like the nuances, you know, the things you learn in playtesting about, you know, okay, if I, if I change this a little bit here, it's going to up the tension there. Anything like that? One thing comes to mind, um, when making an adjustment for balance, uh, typically try to either make an adjustment so that uh, by either doubling something or cutting it by half mm-hmm. to ensure that the changes aren't so subtle that they're imperceptible. I'd rather uh, make too large an adjustment because uh, if, you, if, if it's not enough here and it's too much there, now you have a boundary. If it's not enough here and you make this little adjustment and it's still not enough, you, you, you haven't learned anything. You yeah. just, you know, then you make another adjustment and you still don't know. Um, so doubling or cutting by half at minimum when you're making adjustments, or at least having that mindset, it, it can be really helpful when you're, when you're going iteration, iteration. Yeah, gotcha. Do you have any kind of like specifics on that as far as like, should I, for instance, if my health in a game is 10, for the, well, for the next game, make it mm-hmm. 20, that kind of thing? Yeah, that kind of thing. I mean, um, I don't like to do things by halves when possible because I like to have a little bit more drama. I mean, you can point out Pandemic when I introduce the medic, you know, he, he can take out all cubes. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't it be fun if he just entered a, a, an area uh, and all the cubes come off? It was like magic. People were like, oh, my God, really? <laughs> Uh, when they had tested earlier versions, and that was so exciting to to do things all the way uh, that I really hung on to that. And then you know you could make the game harder to compensate for it, but I didn't want to do I didn't want to have little um, 
sort of dull decisions, uh, lots of decisions that have smaller consequences. Or I'm not, I'm not really in a, a point salad games too, where everything, <laughs> everything you do generates a little piece of a point or something like that. <laughs> right. uh, I'd rather have it a little sharper and have uh, you know um, a little more drama to it. And uh, so, but maybe that's out of this, this sort of, sort of uh, notion of of doing things big and then seeing how much you can get away with. Yeah, I think also just based, you know, talking about player experience, people want to feel powerful. They want to feel cool. They want to feel like yeah. they made a really good choice. And so when you can take that medic and you can take off a whole bunch of cubes all in one one action, you feel good and you feel like I am a yeah. I am helpful to the team here. And so as opposed mm-hmm. to going in there and be like, okay, I can I can take off one extra. No, I can take off all of them. And that's it just makes you feel better as a game. Yeah, if you're going to if you can include the rule, you know, make it matter. Uh, yeah. Make it worth your while to learn it. Definitely. And if it's going to be a special ability, make it special. Make it really special. Make it really yeah. cool and special. Well, Matt, let me get your, your thoughts on what do you decide or you define as a satisfactory experience? Like uh, when you're playing a game, you know, you open the shrink, you learn the rules for a game you've never played. What do you, you know, at the end of that game, how do you say, okay, that was satisfying or not? Like what are the, the kind of parameters for that decision? Um, I, I think for me, it's uh, it's a certain kind of an excitement that I feel at the end of it that uh, there's more to be explored. Um, I enjoyed that. It, it gen- generally it, it gets me in a kind of flow, gets me into some kind of flow state where I'm learning something, but it's just out of reach, and I want I want more. I'm hungry for it, and the game ends, and I still want more, and so I want to play again and, and continue to explore. That's that's my favorite experience at the end of a game. Like. Um, I really enjoyed it, and there's more to be be had here. I want to I want to play it again and see what else I can squeeze out of the out of the game. Yeah. Now, do you do you design games with that in mind? I, for instance, I've played some games that felt like they ended a little earlier than they had to, but they ended in such a good place. I wanted to play again immediately. I call it the Barry Sanders effect, right? Barry Sanders, he retired really not at the end of his career. He probably still had three or four more good years in him. But he left, and he left people wanting more, right? So, mm-hmm. do you do you try to design your games in that same way? And if so, like how do you how do you do that? Yeah, so I mean, I can point to a couple examples. Um, one, uh, there's a dice game I did called Roll Through the Ages, the mm-hmm. Bronze Age, years ago, and uh, it, the game's over when you've got five developments uh, made, and that's because it was meant to be a short kind of filler civilization building dice game. You could build it out into something larger with a bigger tech tree. But it's a dice game. <laughs> so a- after five developments, you've got your engine kind of running, and it's just at the point where you've got something kind of kind of fun making uh, made, and then the game's over. Um, and it makes you want to play again because there's so many other things you want to try out that you weren't able to do that game. So uh, it was kind of tricky setting that setting that uh, um, that boundary. Another is uh, in pandemic, we don't have you after you uh, cure all the diseases. I don't ask you to run around and mop everything up right. because that's really boring. <laughs> um, so uh, <laughs> the game kind of comes up to this this uh, critical moment and climax, and either you find the cures or you don't. And if you do find that cure is great, you won. That's enough. You know, you leave the rest of the imagination. And so it's like good editing in a film. You don't have to see them. Um, you know, go off, get married, raise their family, and see them. You know, enjoying time together. It's enough that they've come together, right? And yeah. then you leave the rest of the imagination. Right. Oh, you, have, you just say they lived happily ever after. Cool. We don't have to see them living happily ever after. Yeah. We just know. Right. Right. Exactly. Awesome. And this has been incredible. This is just incredible advice. Uh, do you have any kind of closing advice for someone who's really working right now, trying to create or cr- trying to craft that player experience? 
keep at it. I mean, know that you, you run down a lot of uh, blind alleys, and the secret to really getting a good game is just doing a lot of iteration and getting a lot of input from a diverse set of people, and uh, seek out other people who know what they, who know what they're doing, and get their advice. And that that really helped me a tremendous amount. Um, and yeah, just just keep at it. And uh, you know, I, I think another thing is really really observe the people who are playing your game and try to develop a sense of empathy. Because uh, for me, that's that's one of the keys to you know, making a quality game because it, it matches what people uh, want, what they're, what they're feeling. Awesome. Matt, really appreciate your time. We're about to head over into a bonus round. We're going to talk about creating alternative versions of your game. Matt's created 11 different versions of Pandemic, and they're all pretty good, and some of them are incredible. And so I want to get his thoughts on how do you, how do you take your game and create a different version, a dice version, all these different things. I'm going to get his thoughts on that. But Matt, really appreciate you coming on the show and good luck with everything you got going on right now. Sure, yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?